Welcome to Conversations on Contemporary Worship. I'm Adam Perez. And I'm Glenn Stallsmith. Glenn and I are part of a team of researchers at the Divinity School at Duke University who study contemporary worship. If you're a worship leader, a pastor, or you teach others to lead congregations in worship, this podcast is for you. We're interested in the well-trod paths about contemporary worship, like music and technology, but also conversations that go much broader and deeper than that. On our podcast, we dive into cutting-edge scholarship on contemporary worship through conversations with leaders in the field, from ethnomusicologists to theologians and sociologists to historians. Our goal is to introduce you to a wide range of scholars and practitioners from whom we have something vital to learn about contemporary worship and the church. In our conversation today, I talk with Dr. Joshua Bussman, professor of music at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. Josh is a researcher and composer in the area. His research focuses broadly on contemporary evangelical Christianity with a particular focus on worship, affect, and mass media. I first learned about Josh through his dissertation work where he was studying passion conferences in Atlanta. Josh is here to talk about his recent chapter called Amateurism Without Amateurishness or Authenticity as Vanishing Act in Evangelical Worship Music. You can find this chapter in a book of essays, and this is a book that you will definitely want to check out. It's called Ethics and Christian Musicking. It, its editors are Nate Myrick and Mark Porter. It was published by Rutledge uh, just this year in 2021. We talk about the connection in music between ethics and aesthetics, about the sticky concept of performance for worship leaders, and the role authenticity plays in making worship music a, quote, vanishing mediator. I really like how Josh talks about ethnomusicology research and how it's a way to get to the experiences of actual worshipers. And this way of researching allows for a sense of surprise. It's not just the kind of academic, dry uh, research and analysis uh, that sort of gets parodied when people think about higher education. Um, but by looking at how people actually worship and how they actually approach God, it uncovers new ways of seeing how people worship. Enjoy this interview with a person who has a deep interest in the worship life of Christian congregations which he brings to his work as a researcher. Thanks for being here, Josh. Um, if we could just get started by you telling us a little bit about the scope of your research as it pertains to contemporary worship, what kind of work have you been doing? What are you interested in? Yeah, I think uh, in general, the things that have interested me most is about uh, sort of the ways that music uh wiggles its way into the sort of cracks and the interstices between uh, what we'd think of as, as a sort of traditional theological reflection. Um, one of the, the anecdotes that I often have told about my sort of like uh, starting down this journey was before my wife and I got married, my wife comes from a very large uh, Italian Roman Catholic family. And so there was a little bit of conversation before we got married about whether or not we were going to be married uh, properly with a mass in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and uh, so I remember us having a conversation one night where my uh, future wife was expressing some anxiety about this. And I said, well, that's OK. I know a lot about Roman Catholic theology. Just let me talk to your parents. And she paused for a second. And she said, well, yeah, you know a lot about Roman Catholic theology, but they don't. 
Like that's not going to be helpful. <laughs> um, and they're the they're the Catholics in the situation. So I think right. thinking about the ways in which, uh, you know, maybe because I was raised in this sort of uniquely uh, theologically minded household with a clergyman uh, father uh, mm-hmm. and one who uh, encouraged a kind of very open ended, very wide ranging theological reflection. Um, at, at the sort of ways in which that is often not uh, directly connected to uh, to actual on the ground practiced Christianity mm-hmm. uh, and the ways in sure. which music often serves, I think, as a helpful bridge uh, between those two things and a, a way into the conversation about w- the complexity of Christianity on the ground. Wow, that's great. So in, in your experience, in some ways, too, the music personally as a musician has been has been a bridge for that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think music uh, is is oftentimes uh, it, it's it's almost like it's working in the background, right? It's it's allowing for the uh, holding together of multiple ideas. It's allowing for the uh, sort of subconscious articulation of things that you can't quite put into words. It's uh, it's it's yeah. yeah, it's serving as a, a sort of spoke around which or a, a hub around which all of these spokes are, are maybe coming together. Yeah, that's great. So you've you've done some work specifically studying contemporary worship. Um, you know, you you mentioned some of the intersections in your own life. Why contemporary worship as the musical idiom and not you know hymns and songs or you know uh, Roman Catholic music or Taze or you know some of these other themes? I think actually probably the answer is that uh, when I did my master's thesis at uh, UNC. My master's thesis was actually all about Calvin and Calvinist hymn singing in the Francophone oh, world okay. in the 16th century. Um, and as I was doing that research, uh, first of all, I discovered that maybe I did not have the passion for microfilm that I thought uh, <laughs> would maybe be required. I had a similar that, experience to do that kind Studying of Lutheran music, yeah. Long term, yeah. Um, but I think it was also the case that I just as I was reading these, you know, conversations from the 16th century, I just kept thinking, I, I remember that one growing up in the early 90s, uh, you know, swapping out transparencies on the mm. uh, overhead projector and doing being part of that sort of early mm. uh, worship wars environment in a Southern Baptist church. Uh, I've had these conversations before. And so it was thinking about the ways in which uh, that sort of historical reflection brought me right back to the present day. So turning to this particular article and particular work we're we're talking about today, um, amateurism without amateurishness or authenticity as vanishing act in evangelical worship music. And let me just say, uh, those of you working in musicology and ethnomusicology sometimes put us through the the ringer on the the theoretical language here. So you're doing a lot in that title. Can you tell us like what the driving questions are for the project, you know, as there's one, two, three, four, potentially five contested terms in, in that title. Uh, give us a, give us a, an image of where it's going, what, where it's from and where it's going. My sort of central impetus for this particular article was thinking through the ways in which, uh, in addition to uh, contemporary worship music being this sort of massive uh, network of songwriters and recording artists and, uh, you know, big sort of mega events like uh, mm-hmm. the Passion Conference that I've written a lot about. Um, that it also is a kind of network of amateur cover bands, for lack of a better way of putting it. I mean, this is the way I've often articulated it to uh, to music and, and pop music studies colleagues who are like, yeah. what is this thing you're studying? Yeah. 
And so thinking about the sort of amateur performance was, uh, for me, a way into thinking about what was happening on Sundays, right? Uh, there's actually, uh, you know, a number of people who study in popular music studies who are thinking about amateur performance as a way in that uh, maybe, you know, uh, Stairway to Heaven because you have listened to the record. But, you know, you might also remember trying to play it in your bedroom and, and that inflects, you know, the sort of way that you remember a song like that. Oh, sure. um, and so... I was thinking through that sort of question of of uh, amateurism and amateurishness, and um, I immediately thought of punk music as another style of music for whom this sort of amateurism was an, an ethical commitment. Um, sure. But the the aesthetics, obviously, of punk music and worship music are so different. Uh, and I, in part, I became fascinated with the idea that uh, – in worship music, there is this desire for uh, a kind of purity or naivety mm. um, or uh, invisibility, as maybe we'll talk about in a little bit, that comes with that amateurism. But it's not allowed to sound amateur, right? Uh, because that would that would be distracting. That would be taking away from the yeah. worship experience. Um, and so maybe trying to think of of worship music alongside some other pop traditions, uh, probably most most prominently folk music and and punk music. Um, and how does it work in similar ways and how does it work in different ways? Yeah, I'm reminded in, in your conversation there about uh, of something actually from your dissertation, the conversation on the song, uh, just forget about ourselves and magnify his name and worship him. Uh, that kind of performs in a very sort of self-conscious way that uh, that disavowal, removal, you know, all those those themes yeah, one of the examples that I've often used too is the the first line of Matt Redman's Heart of Worship, right? Oh, sure. The, the, the first line of the song is when the music fades. Right. right? It was right. like, but it just faded up. What do you mean? We're yeah. already fading it That's down, right? right? Uh, but it's like <laughs> you have to conceptually sort of fade it down. It has to vanish in order mm. for the worship part to begin. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great example, too, of articulating in a song. I mean, it, it, sometimes contemporary worship songs get banged on about lyrics that are uh, sort of vapid or or sort of self-facing, uh, not e-facing, facing themselves in sort of their self-consciousness. And, and that song goes uh, completely in the opposite direction, right? Uh, yeah, lyrically, right. at least, uh, at the front. That's great. Um Thanks. So, so on this question, I mean, can you, is there an easy way to summarize your, what we might call your findings from, uh, in a more concrete way from, from this discussion on amateurist, amateur-ishness <laughs> and amateurism? Yeah. I, I, well, I think a couple of things maybe to, to sort of bring out. Um, one is the degree to which, um, this, this question of vanishing, uh, you know, so maybe I'll start with this. One of the reasons why I bring, uh, you know, punk music and and worship music into conversation, despite this, uh, maybe them not seeming like a natural pair, is because in both communities, um, you have two things that I think are really important. One is the inextricability of ethics and aesthetics. So the degree to mm -hmm. which uh, the, the way that the music sounds and the sort of beliefs that undergird that that sound are are very difficult to disentangle. Uh, sure. They're constantly feeding back onto one another. Um, and then the other one would be that within punk communities, as within Christian communities, there's often a kind of anxiety around role 
um, punk communities often very have a, a real disdain for pure spectators. You, if you're there, you got to participate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and so that nice. blurring between performer and audience yeah. and the sort of desire to create something in which everyone is a participant, yeah. not just those on stage. Yeah. That, that was another sort of way into. Yeah, uh, yeah you, you hardly need to say more of just like the resonance of, of that of that theme. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the way in which the, the sort of aesthetic and ethical components get ruled together, then um, I think allows me then to think, OK, if we're all sort of in this together participating and the way that we're shaping this aesthetic experience has ethical ramifications, mm -hmm. um, then what does it mean to uh, have an ethics of disappearance and ethics mm -hmm. of vanishing mm -hmm. as our sort of dominant mode of, oh, of sure. worship engagement. I, can I ask, I want to ask about that there, you know, there've been a few musical style revolutions, if not m multiple ongoing streams, uh, when you talk about a aesthetic and ethical, uh, this sort of interweaving, I mean, how do you, yeah, how do you hold on to the fact that there are these, there are multiple musical streams? I mean, the wall of sound mm -hmm. musical kind of thing versus perhaps an earlier, you know, f very clearly folk inspired or pop uh, middle of the road sort of uh, stuff. Like, uh, yeah, is this a through line through all of these different musical styles? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we'll we'll see how uh, compressed I can make this. <laughs> over, over the last like 25 or 30 years, uh, maybe really all going all the way back to the 70s, but let's say especially over the last 30 years, sure. there's sort of been two like parallel tracks that have been uh, two parallel phenomena that have been running at the same time. So on the one hand, you're getting increasingly um, through the contesting of the worship wars in local congregations, I think a kind of opening up of musical style um, by the sort of uh, this claim of musical style as a neutral carrier of oh, sure. the message, right? This is uh, one of ethnomusicologist Monique Ingalls' central points in a lot of her work. That basically one of the results of the worship wars is that we come to think of musical style as just a container. If we fill it with Christian mm -hmm. content, meaning text, then mm -hmm. uh, the container sort of is just holding the text. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the triumph of this argument around neutrality is seen very clearly in the music that was around when I was growing up in the 90s, uh, that suddenly you had this explosion of Christian punk and Christian reggae and Christian hip hop. And Christian, yeah, because yeah. you can make any style Christian just by That's swapping right. out the, the. That's right. If, if you like this popular music artist, you'd like, exactly here's the, the Christian alternative. Charts. Yeah. <laughs> right. Where you've got, if you like, yeah, whatever, some 41, you're going to love Reliant K, you know, just yeah. uh, sort of right across the board. So, but what's interesting is at the same time that that's happening, so at the same time as that rhetoric of neutrality is sort of gaining a kind of universal purchase, I think, uh, in a lot of Christian places in North America, you're also getting um, that in that sort of marketplace, okay, we have Christian punk, we have Christian reggae, whatever, um, but there's a new category that enters the, mm. the recording industry, yeah. and that's worship itself. Worship. Yeah. <laughs> and so as worship claims an ever larger piece of that sort of recording industry pie, um, it necessarily goes through this process of genrefication. You know, it necessarily takes on these stable sonic markers uh, that, that, that characterize it as a recorded yeah. And, yeah. and performed product. Yeah. And so, um, and, and it, in some ways it, it, the, the, the two are connected because it becomes easier to accept 
that worship has a sound if you think that sound is neutral to begin with. So they, they sort yeah. of piggyback on one another. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think that that's roughly what's happening. Yeah. And when it enters the marketplace alongside other musical genres, the assumption is uh, carried with that. I imagine that that worship has a sound that you can you can. Uh, you, yeah, you can recognize it. It can be the genrefication process right. there. Yeah, yeah. It's the the example that I have used in a number of places, um, including in the dissertation, was uh, if you basically think about hip hop developing as a culture starting in the South Bronx in the seventies. Um, that if we went to a house party in the late seventies in the South Bronx, and then as we're leaving, you turned to me and you said, "Was that hip hop?" I would have to answer that question by appealing to social context in a pretty like fine grained, you know, coordinate heavy way. Well, sure. what block of the South Bronx were we on? <laughs> Who was at the party? Uh, you know, th there would be a lot of questions I would have to ask. And if I could say, well, yeah, cool Herc was there and there was some B-boy dancing and we were on this block, then like, yeah, probably it was a hip hop. Right. But otherwise, it might have just been somebody who was putting on a lot of good R&B and funk records or disco mm -hmm. records. Um Whereas if you ask the same question in 1991, it almost is unintelligible, uh, appealing to the social context. You just say, well, did it sound like a hip hop record? Because then it probably was. Yeah. And so yeah. the same thing basically happens to worship music that yeah. uh, in the 70s and 80s, if you're going, was this a worship song? You go, well, yeah, I mean, Maranatha recorded it. They recorded it with the intent of using it for congregational worship right. or this recording was made live with a congregation. Mm -hmm. So you can tell this is meant mm -hmm. to be worship yeah. music, whereas now you can just say, well, does it sound like worship music? Because if it yeah. does, then probably is. Yeah. Notwithstanding how uh, far you've exceeded my capacity to describe hip hop. Um, I think it, it brings us to another aspect of your article that I thought was really interesting, especially uh, a question for, for worship leaders, perhaps. So let me ask it with them in mind. For worship leaders thinking about the use of all these online services for and technologies for reproducing particular worship sounds, uh, just to try to use the most generic description I can, worship sounds achieving that that the sound that's that's present on a record. I mean, what's the implication of thinking through this process of being a cover band? I mean, like, what should I worry about that? Should I? I mean, what what's what's at stake? Yeah, um, that's a great question and one that I'm probably not entirely qualified to answer, but uh, I, I can give you a couple of thoughts. Um, one is that um, I think one of the things that I have discovered really uh, sort of in, in so many different areas as I have done this research over the last uh, what, you know 10 years or so mm. um, is that just because a practice sort of the, the the material practices look the same doesn't mean that there's the same sort of intent or uh, even effect inside mm. a, a local community. Right. Mm. Um, this is actually not dissimilar to an argument that I believe uh, your uh, your advice, your dissertation advisor, Lester Ruth and his collaborator, Sui Hong Lem, are talking about in their forthcoming book in, in uh, you know, thinking about. Okay, we're using contemporary worship music and everyone's playing the same CCLI list, but that doesn't mean that necessarily all of them are doing it for the same reasons or that they're doing it to the same effect uh, in the, the sort of congregation sure. that they're doing it, right? Sure. And so uh, when I think about the folks that are using uh, these, you know, sort of band in a box resources, 
right? Mm -hmm. uh, there are so many different reasons that you might use that, right? Are you using them as a temporary sure. patch because your drummer happens to be uh, on paternity leave or in the hospital or, you know, whatever? Sure. Um, are you using this as a way to build confidence among the musicians that you have because they happen to be oh, younger sure. and experienced? Are you using this to paper over some really, you know, sort of poor performances? Are you using this to more closely match, and this is maybe what we started with, more closely match a congregational expectation mm -hmm. uh, based on a professional recording. I think each of these is going to have a sort of different effect and that yeah. uh, congregants by and large are probably uh, intelligent enough and sophisticated enough to actually to actually perceive and, and grapple with the differences between those, right? Yeah. Uh, that if you tell them, hey, look, we're using this sort of band in a box resource, but you know, you you all know Tim. He couldn't be here this week, and that's one of the reasons why we need this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is real different than uh, you know trying to cover over uh, somebody's somebody's that's right. performance. That's right. I'm re I'm reminded of um, the wave of um, CD resources that came out for uh, hymnal accompaniments mm -hmm. in particular. You know, in the I guess you know early '90s, mid '90s, or whatever. Just because you know, the, the, the capacities and the access to the people to lead the music in ways that the congregation would have expected were, were limited. Right. And so these sort of, these technologies are making for congregational worship to, to go on in ways that uh, are recognizable and sort of comfortable and, and meaningful ways for congregations. Yeah, I do think, I mean, I think, so all that to say, like, I do think that there's lots of different reasons people use canned hymn accompaniments or band in a box resources uh, at, yeah. in worship. And that, uh, it, you know, it's not that you can make a pronouncement that they're sort of uniformly bad. Yeah. But I do think that leaders, you know, in my ethnographic work, talking to worshipers in a host of different contexts, um, I think leaders should be aware that there is a real, uh, perceived danger among parishioners themselves hmm. about the uh, the sort of distorting effect that getting hooked into a constant cycle of relying on professional worship recordings can actually have. I can't wow. tell you the number of people that I had tell me at various points in my research at passion events or at sort of very large churches that, yeah, well, I used to be in the, a smaller church and going to enough of these passion events and listening to the passion recordings wow. more consistently basically wrecked my ability to worship in a small church. Wow. And so I sought out a larger congregation, um, not necessarily because of something they were offering me in terms of community or belonging, but because uh, the church that I was in technologically, logistically mm -hmm. could not reproduce the sounds that I wanted uh, when it came to worship. Yeah. Wow. Um, I, I, I pulled a quote uh, from a worship leader that uh, came from when I was talking to him in my field work. And he said, quote, the generation under us only knows passion and arenas full of people for them to worship means lights, sounds, the whole deal. But if we always have to have the lights down, does that mean we're uncomfortable with each other? If we always have to have keyboard fills in the background, does that mean we're uncomfortable with silence? Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, that is something I, I think um, I, I certainly think yeah. about. Yeah. And, and a, a great, uh, you know, the, the question of how worship forms us is a question worship leaders are always asking often with the conversation, I think, in my experience, uh, oriented toward text or toward sort of character um, of a worship leader, their capacity to lead. But, but the other kind of, yeah, like you're describing here, the, the whole situation of uh, the worship gathering being, being particularly formative aesthetically um, preferences and, and even possibly, I mean, it seems like a, like a, 
like an important and uh, meaningful thing to say, like for that worship leader that like it's, it's challenging to worship in a different context because of his aesthetic expectations. Mm -hmm. Like that's a big transformation. I mean, I don't know in, in worship terms, if you can, if you can name a bigger sort of expectation, like a lot's at stake there. Yeah. Especially given that, uh, you know, participation is the, is the goal. Like if that's yeah. presenting, preventing them for, from participating, then the, the barrier has to be lowered on one end yeah. of that equation or the other. Yeah. I mean, you have yeah. to, you know, I, one of the things that I think I've, I've said to a number of worship leaders that I've talked to over the years, but is this quote that I love uh, from Bernice Johnson Reagan, who is a, a song leader who marched with Dr. King and was essential to a lot of the civil rights marches of the sixties and early seventies. And, um, they're sort of asking her about what songs were particularly good uh, in, in a civil rights march and, you know, thinking about these sort of iconic songs of resistance and solidarity, you know, We Shall Overcome or mm -hmm. Lift Every Voice and Sing or uh, even something like This Little Light of Mine. And what she says in the interview is she says, look, the point is not to sing a particularly compelling song. The point is to be in singing with yeah. everybody who's there. And mm -hmm. so if what's going to get you there is... Uh, is lift every voice and sing all the better because uh, you're you're you know operating at two levels there in terms of the formation that you're doing. Yeah. But if it's Jesus loves me or uh, you know some simple sort of uh, chant and response, uh, that that's still getting you <laughs> to the place yeah. you want to be, which is you want to be in singing. And yeah. so uh, thinking about the ways that that's operating uh, yeah. all the time in worship too, I think is really essential. Yeah, and for arena worship, if if you need. All, that whole aesthetic um, mm -hmm. collection uh, to be able to get to that place of worship. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, How do you untrain like, that? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's the, an open know. question, of course not. Of course it's uh, I think the, the joke I made one time at, at passion was where two or $3 million of sound equipment are gathered. There shall I be also. <laughs> oh, geez. That is a, that is an indictment. That is an indictment. <laughs> So, Josh, how do you think this kind of work as an ethnomusicologist, uh, uh, you know, you're also a historian in, in your own, in your work, um, how do these make contributions to studying Christian worship communities methodologically? I mean, what does it, what does it offer us that other methods don't? Um, I think for me, the, the primary uh, reason why I find ethnography so valuable um, is because it it basically fills in for a massive deficiency that I have, um, <laughs> which is as an academic, systematic theology is really interesting to me. And I could uh, read and talk endlessly about it. Unfortunately, the actual lived content of mm. religion for most people does not consist of uh, of systematic propositional theology. <laughs> yeah. It consists of a very That's different right. thing. And I can't uh, no matter how much systematic theology I read, I can't ever cross that divide without going and talking to those people. Yeah. And so uh, it it helps me to sort of uh, always remember to sort of build my models of how I think this stuff is working from the bottom up rather than from the top down. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, along with that, or maybe even more than that, it's um, if you have constructed a, uh, an understanding of other people, or maybe if you constructed an understanding of God that doesn't allow them to surprise you, uh, that seems like a, potentially a, a red flag. 
<laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I have been uh, actually yesterday was my wife and I's 12th anniversary, right? Uh, we've been together for uh, thank you. We've been together for, uh, you know, 16 years. And so I think you could say that we know each other pretty well. Uh, however, she still surprises me, right? <laughs> um, you know, and it would sort of worry me if she didn't, right? That that mm-hmm. uh, that she she still maintains a kind of subjective inner life that means that she's more complex than I ever want to understand her to be. And so uh, I think that that uh, that uh, ability to be surprised for me is a marker of a kind of authentic relationship, mm-hmm. uh, either to within a, a community or uh, within a sort of religious uh, practice. That, that I want to I want to be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. And you bring up for me that kind of, um, you know, there was a a turn uh, in liturgical theology too, to this uh, secondary theology as as a sort of theological reflection, but primary theology being this sort of lived lived theology. And, and, you know, this happened in other fields too, but, you know, for for theology, this question of, you know, what do the, or, or for, excuse me, for liturgical theology, the question of what do the worshipers believe about what they're experiencing and, and why they say and do what they do, these sort of questions of, you know, can we build systematically from from their experiences uh, to with the, its own challenges um, when you're talking Absolutely. theologically, uh, namely uh, orthodoxy, <laughs> the question yeah, of what does sure. it mean to be part of the tradition or not? Um, you know, I wonder how, um, you know, for contemporary worship, often uh, my experience, there can be a um, an assumption that once you've sort of moved into the contemporary worship world, you've lost uh, you've lost, well, it, it comes from a comparison of like lyrical content of songs, you know, the idea that like, you know, traditional hymns, uh, to use the, actually just some big scare quotes, traditional hymns, they teach theology and whatever. And contemporary worship songs, they're, they're sort of like we we're saying vapid, or they're just uh 7-Eleven songs. And, right. you know, they're sort of, they're empty as far as their content or their, their theological character. Um, what do you say to that, you know, from your work to that kind of divide? Yeah. Um, to maybe uh, sort of use uh, a, a comparison that is uh, very much on the minds of a lot of church folks uh, at the moment, which is uh, coming back after COVID, yeah. right? And, and figuring out sort of what does church look like in this new environment? Um, you know, I think you see a lot of hand wringing from church leaders if, if uh, attendance has not rebounded to those pre-COVID mm-hmm. levels. Um, but one of the things that I've, I have thought about a lot is, you know, the reality is it, if you have 120 people in the pews and you had 250 before, it, it could totally be the case that you had 120 engaged people in the pews before and you have 120 engaged people in the pews right now. And what you've lost, you know, uh, is is basically a, a, a group that was being held tight by a kind of perpetual momentum, but not mm. uh, by sort of practice. And so I think what I would say is that uh, if you show me someone who prefers hymns uh, to contemporary worship, uh, that doesn't actually tell me anything about how they're engaging those things. You're just as mm-hmm. likely to find people who appreciate hymns because they find them, quote unquote, pretty, uh, yeah. as you are to find people who appreciate contemporary worship mm-hmm. because of the way that it brings together this diverse collection of, yeah. uh, you know, historically orthodox uh, references into a, a digest digestible package. Yeah. I upset the organist at my church once by uh, immediately after the service during this sort of fellowship hour, he was saying something about, um, about the content of the hymns or something. I said, I wonder if we go over to those uh, three choir members, if we can, let's go over and ask them what the last hymn was about. 
and we went over and uh they were like oh wait. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> like couldn't yep. tell us what the what the lyric and not that it, you know it sort of reduce it to lyrical content but that similar sort of um perhaps uh inability to articulate what it meant for them to be present singing that song in a way that that's goes transcends the lyrics or something yeah there's or a other ways of, of- of actually of discourse about this particular phenomenon in popular music studies, uh, mm-hmm. Robert Wolser, who writes a lot about heavy metal and, and other forms of, oh, uh, sure. of uh, hard rock has written about this, that basically the lyrics come to, to mark a sort of shorthand for a particular aesthetic moment, but it's not the lyrics themselves that you're referencing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe one of the most famous examples of this was Peter Christensen, a sociologist who did the study about Bruce Springsteen's born in the USA, um, which, you know, is this song that has, historically been used as a massive sort of anthemic patriotic thing, even though all of the lyrics are about deindustrialization and uh, the sort of failure of Vietnam policy and all of these things. Um, and one of the things they found is they basically gave the lyrics to Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA to, um, it was a, a group of people ranging from age like four or five, all the way up to like college freshmen, I think. So, uh, you know, up to age 18 or 19. And what they found is that at the sort of uh, micro level, individual lines, um, as the students got older, they got better and better able to parse them, uh, not surprisingly, right? So if you, if I was to ask my four-year-old, what does this line when it says gone to kill the yellow man mean? He would think that there was just a guy who was yellow, right? Um, yeah. Whereas uh, when you get to, Yikes. say, a college, uh, college freshman, they go, okay, that's probably a reference to Vietnam. And it's talking about this sort of racial stereotype about, mm-hmm. uh, about the, the, the Vietnam policy of the time. Uh, what was fascinating, though, is so at the micro level, obviously, as people were more and more educated, they became better able to parse the individual things. But when you zoomed out and you asked people, OK, but at the end of the day, what is this song about? Um, their opinion of the song as basically a patriotic anthem did not change, mm. regardless sure. of how fine grained they could dive into individual lyrics. Mm. Um, the primary meaning of the song came from that sort of fist pumpy uh, chorus energy more than it came from any individual lyric that they mm. So, wow. yeah, uh, I'm thinking of other songs and songs that uh, you've written about, like uh, like Chris Tomlin's God's Great Dance Floor. God, is that the name of the title? Yeah, is that the title? Yeah. yeah, which is actually, uh, um, oh, now I'm totally blanking on the guest name uh, from uh, from Delirious, Martin Smith. Smith. It's actually a Martin Smith song. Oh, OK. I didn't know uh, that. He recorded it uh, without a whole lot of pickup. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, Tomlin's version was much ah. Much better now. Yeah, I feel like it's probably fair to say not Tomlin's song, but like Tomlin's version in general, yes, like absolutely. as a just a way of speaking about Chris Tomlin. Yes. Um, yeah, this conversation about the about the meaning of lyrics, yeah, sort of wrapping me back into that question of um, of the ethic and aesthetic, um, just having that power beyond beyond the lyrical formation. Um, yeah. Totally. Let me let me ask this. Um, you know, sometimes we talk about projects as interventions in a field. Um, your work in this article, in your dissertation, in your broader work, where do you see it as challenging gaps or misunderstandings about contemporary worship or as contemporary worship is uh, sort of related to other fields? You mentioned pop music and uh, other kinds of studies. Yeah, so I do think part of it is um, maybe trying to think of it 
outside, think of contemporary worship music outside of the sort of natural silo that it's placed in because of its use. Um, in mm-hmm. fact, um, I'm at the very early stages, uh, if you are uh, at the the RIP on College Cuddiston uh, virtual conference in a couple of weeks, my paper is called Spotify Thy Name. <laughs> I, yeah, I saw that. Beginning <laughs> to think about this, this question of, of worship music on streaming services. But, you know, th- that uh, not even so much just thinking about streaming services, but thinking about the way in which uh, that sort of collapsing of the media environment means Worship music is no longer this totally separate and distinct thing with separate and distinct publishing and separate and distinct recording labels and separate and distinct mm. distribution processes that, um, that you know, whatever Sufi devotional music uh, from Pakistan and uh, mainstream rock and roll from the 1970s and worship music are all just right there together. I mean, it's, mm. it's all in the same search bar in the same app. Uh, And so thinking about the ways in which we can maybe remove some of the siloed assumptions from worship music and think of it as part of this broader constellation or network of Mm -hmm. popular musics uh, or or, uh, sort of available musics in this digital music environment. I think that's definitely one thing that I'm interested in. Um, Another thing is is definitely something that we have talked about in a couple of contexts now, but that that question of sort of lyrics, I think that by and large, when people think of religious music, they think of a text that happens to be set to music. And Mm -hmm. so uh, interrogating the way in which the music at sort of every level, at the level of individual gesture, at the level of uh, a particular segment of a song, at the level of a song or a set list or a whole service, you know, a whole sort of liturgical season, maybe um, the way in which music sort of can become an item for analysis itself and finding ways that you can uh, get at it, uh, you know, so have having written an article about, you know, looking at this one song, God of the city and two different versions of it Mm -hmm. and how you can begin to tease apart these musical implications or looking at, uh, you know, hymns that have been retuned by especially passion artists and how looking at two different versions of the hymn that have the same lyrics uh, Mm -hmm. and maybe even some of the same superficial musical features, but are, you know, tugging at the seams. So Mm -hmm. um, that, that has been, you know, trying, trying to get at moments where we can look at music a little more directly, uh, which of course is challenging because uh, as part of my thesis is it's, it's always vanishing. So I'm trying to constantly unvanish it. Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. And even, you know, I was thinking about um, how you talk about the pads and, and worship sounds, like, you know, some of those sounds are, I mean, they're distinct in a way, but they're also, I don't know, what is the right word? They're not even, they're not, it's not like, uh, so I'm imagining, for example, early aughts, uh, Hillsong and these like iconic guitar lead lines yeah. that have no longer exist in many of these worship songs right. there and people talking about atmospheric uh, or, you know, these other sorts of words because the, the musical um, backing is just so... Uh, nondescript i don't know you know there it's hard to to say what's happening the 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 movements are slow the harmonizations are sort of uh i don't want to use negative words but like they're not bland but they're texture rich in ways rather than um rather than other you know rock sounds that we think of as rhythm or melody or you know yeah well i think of um i think one of the things that maybe we have to think about here too is um for all, probably a host of reasons, when we think about the connection between um, the, the sort of Christian silo and the broader music marketplace, we always want to think the line of influence from the secular marketplace into Christianity, and we mm. never want to think it the other direction. 
Um, sure. So it's always Christians are ripping off mainstream popular musics and bringing them into the church. You know, they're and taking, there are some good examples. There are some excellent examples. Right? <laughs> taking wholesale a whole yeah. you know subgenre yeah. of popular music and just ripping it off and adding Jesus to it. Right. Yeah. Um, however, right. I, I think you know, and 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 so you can talk about that in worship music, right? I think there's a lot of worship records in the late '90s and early 2000s. You could basically say would not sound the way they did if it weren't for like U2's The Joshua Tree mm-hmm. <laughs> and other records like that, mm-hmm. right? Um, however, what I think is happening maybe over the last 10 or 15 years is the influence is actually running the other direction sometimes. So okay. if a worship, if those early 2000s Hillsong records wouldn't sound like they do without U2, I would say that Mumford and Sons wouldn't sound like they do without Hillsong. Mm-hmm. The, the, the sort of lines run in, in both directions. And so mm-hmm. uh, we have to think about the number of just practically the number of musical artists who have gotten their start playing in worship bands because it's it's an easily available musical outlet, uh, especially in North America. Right. Uh, And so uh, I think that that is maybe one way to begin to interrogate that is where are we seeing worship music actually crop up on the charts uh, because of it just becoming another sound in this sort of broader affect. This is another thing I, I, again, I am sort of in the early stages of thinking about, but I I talk about in uh, this Spotify Thy Name project that I'm just uh, thinking about now is, is worship now among a catalog of popular music affects like banger or power Mm. ballad, or it's just another, (laughs) it's another color in the palette. And so, you know, it is, you know, I don't have to tell you, oh, this is a power ballad. The instant it starts, you know, I don't have to tell you this is a club banger. You just know because it's it's one of the sort of set uh, Mm -hmm. affects that's available to pop music composers. I think that sort of worshipful, reverent tone uh, that that comes from contemporary worship music is uh, maybe slowly Mm -hmm. being added to that uh, that sonic palette. Yeah, the, I'm thinking of the number of recent projects that have taken uh, liturgical music in in you know popular music, secular music that have taken liturgical music as their sort of inspiration. But I'm also thinking about a comment I heard recently on a on a on a I would say a forum if it were ten years ago. It's on a Facebook uh, uh, worship leaders group where um, somebody chimed in and said, you know, I really miss when I, when I could scroll through the stations on the radio and I could tell that it was the worship, um, you know, that I had hit the worship station because just like the sound, like immediately by the sound of the songs and that I don't, and that person was saying, I don't feel like this is the case anymore that like, you know, I can't tell just by hearing it and sort of, you know, his, sense of loss at that but um yeah but yeah yeah and i think to that person i would say like a lot of people had the same anxieties about amy grant and michael Smith uh, in the <laughs> 80s and early 90s i mean it really this is an ever-present that's right that's pendulum right. that's going back and forth uh you yeah. know is there is there that distinctiveness right i think yeah. you could say a lot of the institutions we have in contemporary worship music are basically formed in that backlash against a kind of crossover mm-hmm. aesthetic that's right. uh, that dominates the late 80s and early 90s, that there's a desire to say, we don't want songs that are ambiguous enough right. that they can go on the radio. We want them to be clearly marked with Christian content. Mm-hmm. And we want them to be part of a sort of church-owned infrastructure. I mean, the, you know, you know, the Hillsong label or the, the yeah. Passion Six Steps label, like these are owned by churches or parachurch organizations. Um, mm-hmm. And so, but, but 
if if that was the sort of backlash, we're now the backlash to the backlash, right? And yeah. so the, there's a there's yeah. a sort of moving back towards more of a crossover ethos, even though it obviously looks different than it did. Yeah, yeah, and the church based record labels, if we can call them that, media companies uh, becoming their own brands and their own sort of uh, you know having their own character in a certain way. Yeah. And basically being being doomed by their own success. I mean, you know, Passion Six Steps label is it's selling too many records and they have to basically sell the the label to Capital or to EMI, I guess, first, which then gets bought by Capital um, in yeah. order to be able to get out the number of records that they want. And, and yeah. you know, as as someone who wants you know worship music to go, that probably makes you feel pretty conflicted because on the one hand right. you go, well, we want this to be, you know, something that we feel like is, is being conducted in a through going Christian way that maybe is controlled by, uh, thoughtful, uh, you know, Christian organizations from start to finish. But at the same time, we want to get as many records out the door as we can. Right. Yeah. We have modern production needs that are not necessarily inflected by, uh, by Christian uh, values in some in some way, somebody's <laughs> got to print the, the you know print the CD. Somebody's got to cut the tracks. Like exactly this, so. these are exactly technical so. proficiencies. Yeah, we've been talking a bit about uh, well about a variety of uh, intersections here and in as they relate to your your article. But um, how might your work in this article really help worship leaders, um, or how might it respond to? the challenges or the the misconceptions that worship leaders have about their work in uh in worship like how how might it support them in their week to week work what do they take with them and put it in their back pocket yeah i think a couple of things that that makes me think of right one is maybe an invitation into some of that complexity um in in the following way which is you know, I, I, I get the temptation maybe a little bit as a teacher, but especially as a parent to think mm. that when you are communicating formative ideas, that they are being received in the clear and uh, continuous way that you are communicating them. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, part of the, the, <laughs> the value in ethnographic work is to remind mm. you over and over again that they are not yeah. being received that way. Right. Right. Um, that, that the ideas, the, the sort of formative practices that you are attempting to put in place are being received in ways that you cannot control. Uh, and that uh, and that the people who are receiving them might not even be able to fully articulate themselves. Right. That there, yeah. there is this kind of, you know, unknowability. That's maybe that surprise element that I was talking about before. Yeah. Um, I think. Uh, maybe to go along with that, uh, another place where I think that sort of complexity can can come in, and maybe a way to to think about uh, the the enriching power uh, for for average worship leaders, which is, um, I think that congregations uh, are generally more capable of holding these sort of things in tension, maybe than we give them credit for. Hmm. Uh, and so again, sort of going back to the thing that I was talking about before. Um, that rather than using the band in the box, uh, you know, solution to sort of paper over a gap in the uh, in the worship sound for that day. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, what if your solution was to trust the congregation with that gap right? mm-hmm. to, to entrust that gap to them and to allow them to sort of hold the gap together uh, as part of the conscious experience of worship for the day? Yeah. Um, I think very often uh, there is a fear uh, around this sort of presentation, this slick sort of no hiccup presentation right. uh, from the, the the front of the platform, 
And uh, it is not something that I routinely hear from uh, parishioners that they seem terribly concerned about. Uh, but from people who sit in sound booths or uh, stand yeah. in front of microphones, it is something they think about a lot. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, maybe that, that would yeah. be something. That Perhaps a casualty of the increasing technological capacities that, that worship leaders are, are asked to employ or are um, sort of in the, in the world they're embedded in musically and otherwise. Um, yeah. Other other ethics, I guess uh, you might say, in a way, too, um, for what or other values to just reduce it to that kind of language. Yeah, and and I think calling people into a kind of recognition of, or maybe even accountability to some of those ethical ideas. So to say, uh, you know, to people like, look, if if you're concerned that this uh, drummer sounds, you know, sort of amateurish. Right. Uh, maybe remember that this isn't a drummer. This is Tim. This is Jeff. This is, uh, you know, uh, Samantha. This is a person that, you know, yeah. this is not yeah. the abstract the drummer of a drummer. <laughs> yeah. right? uh, and so when they fail to keep time, it's yeah, yeah uh, it's a result of their humanity, which is fully there the whole time. That's a beautiful last word, Josh. Thanks for the conversation. Thanks for the insight. Thanks for your work in multiple projects, which we'll uh, we'll be pointing our listeners to um, on our landing page for this episode. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for joining us on Conversations on Contemporary Worship. We would like to thank the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship for funding this project and the Divinity School at Duke University for providing support. If you enjoyed our conversation, you can find out more at sites.duke.edu backslash contemporary worship. Check there for additional content, including new podcast episodes and supplemental resources that you can use in your classrooms and with your teams and with your congregations. Stay tuned for more episodes where we will continue this conversation. See you next time.